Welcome back to the third episode of the Most Notorious Gangsters in the World podcast. I'm the host, Corey Franchise, as always. And today, I want to talk about the godfather of cocaine. He was said to be responsible for at least 80% of the cocaine trafficking in the world. His net worth in the 80s and 90s was around $30 billion. And once Forbes stated that, his son begged to differ and said it was much more than that. They said this man spent $2,500 a month on rubber bands just to hold money together. One of the most, if not the most successful criminal of all time, even though he had a half a billion dollars that was eaten by rats, it said that he still has billions stashed in Colombia. And if you know your history, you know who I'm talking about. Pablo Escobar. He was born 1939, the son of a peasant farmer, and a school teacher. When Pablo was two, his family moved into town in a suburb in the city of Medellin. He grew up in a violent era in Colombia. During the time, the country had the highest murder rate. Everybody was heavily armed and they wanted to make sure you knew it. In Medellin, there's even a shrine where paid killers come to light candles before going to work. In a city of two million people, there are four murders a day. As a teenager, Pablo was expelled from school and he started his life in the petty crime. He started in the drug business by driving cocoa paste from the Andean mountains to the labs in Medellin. He used to race his brother there and the winner got to keep all the proceeds. He got caught once, but the charges were dropped on a technicality. By the time he was 26, he had transitioned from courier to smuggler and Pablo knew it would be big bucks if he could get a plane. Cocaine was worth 35000 a kilo at the time. He had an American flight coordinator, Max Mermelstein, and a few flights later, he quickly became a multimillionaire. It was said that the pilots would make up to a million dollars a trip. By age 30, Pablo had purchased Hacienda Annapolis for a reported $63 million, his own helicopter, private zoo, and thousands of acres. He would have camera crews come and shoot his movies and photos of him and his guys. His guys would pose in front of a car who was once the most legendary gangster, Al Capone. But Pablo really had a grip on his organization. That's how he became so successful. The pilots thought that Pablo had the best outfit from anyone they had ever worked for. One pilot said he flew 20 trips for Pablo. Some did even more. One crew did 38 flights in six months and they all came through. Some made it, some didn't. The planes would smuggle about 400 kilos per trip. Each flight was worth 10 million. They would have to take off twice sometime to burn some fuel because they were twice the gross weight of the planes and didn't want to crash. They also had to avoid thunderstorms. The planes had to run the gauntlet of the US Customs who have planes of their own, but only one out of 100 will be detected. The bills were unloaded in a remote area sometimes dropped in the water and picked up by speedboats. Miami was port of entry. And back then, cocaine would seem to be non-addictive. By age 32, Pablo's earning a half a million dollars a day. The biggest smugglers were the Ochea brothers and Jose Rodriguez got you. He had an appetite for extreme violence. Also, Cano Slater, who had helped Escobar create a sophisticated transshipment network. In 1981, Pablo was forced to compete or cooperate with his rivals. So they worked together. They mixed shipments, 
and everybody's product was together. If anybody took a loss, everyone took a loss. But for the most part, they were successful. They were soon called the Medellin Cartel, running about five flights a week to the U.S., Pablo making a million dollars a day now, dividing up the U.S. market with competitors from the Colombian city of Cali. Escobar was also becoming famous for something else, extreme violence, and his hitmen became very valued employees. In his organization, it didn't matter if you was woman or child. If you were going to die, you were going to die. If he killed the father, he was killing the rest of the family. Aunts, uncles, grandfathers, grandmothers, nephews, nieces, you name it. But Escobar used violence strategically. That's what separated him from the rest of the cocaine smugglers. Escobar was a family man, a husband, and a father. He would stop any meeting if his daughter or son demanded his attention. He was another modern-day Robin Hood to a city. He bought trucks to distribute food to people. He did for his community, schools, provided jobs, and was doing more than the government was doing at the time. He decided to run for office and announced himself candidate in congressional election. And he won in 1982. And for the next two years, Pablo was able to buy off almost anybody that he wanted. And if you didn't take his money, then he was taking your life. The new ambassador at the American Embassy found it hard to get the Colombian government to care about a trade that was doing so well, taking care of balances in the country. They looked at it as a U.S. problem, not a Colombian problem. After a White House announcement, they were calling for a national crusade. The DEA made cocaine a high priority. They then learned a Colombian worker for Escobar wanted to buy a huge amount of ether and was willing to pay cash. Ether, which is a part of the traditional formula to process cocoa paste. But he was being sent to Harry and Mel, DEA agents, in charge of a sting operation in Chicago Upgrove Industrial Area near Chicago Airport. They acted as brokers for the ether and told him they would be able to assist him with spending his 400000 cash. He then gave them a 15000 deposit to start the process. Before the first 76 barrels left for Columbia, DEA technicians opened two of them and put battery-powered transmitters inside. Escobar had no clue of this. Now they could be tracked all the way back to Columbia. The transmitter picked up the location. It was in a jungle near the Yai River which Pablo had a lab to process cocaine. On March 10, 1984, after being tipped off by the DEA, the Anti-Narcotics National Police of Colombia, they went to raid the location. They monitored the area, and they found airstrips and labs capable of refining and shipping cocaine on an industrial scale. 14 metric tons of cocaine worth more than $1 billion, weigh scales, receipts, and accounts. Then they looked the next day and found another airstrip, and another lab, and another airstrip. This was the greatest drug bust in the history of the world, all in a remote location. So remote, they called it Tranquilanda, meaning land of tranquility. The police didn't even know of the area or the Medellin cartel before this day. A number of major players would bring their raw materials there to make coca. At the time, Colonel Ramirez was contacted around the time of the bust. People showed up at his home and asked if he would seize our operation in Tranquilanda and he would be rewarded with multi-millions. But Ramirez would not accept the bribe. Instead, 
He threw five or ten gallons of ether in each room and set it on fire with a torch. Also, before the entire place burned to the ground, Colonel Ramirez found a death list with his name on it. Also, his boss, the Minister of Justice. Escobar denounced the Minister of Justice as an American puppet. And behind the scenes, he put a contract on his life. He received death threats at the ministry and at his home. They couldn't protect their own minister. Later that night, after the threats, he was assassinated. Pablo was indicted for the murder, but he never stood trial. So at this point in Colombia, everybody knew cocaine wasn't just an American problem. The government raided Haciendas and put pressure on the cartel. But the real fathers of cocaine would never be found. They were located in South America, safe from arrest. At this time, Pablo was doing business with Castro's Cuba and doing business with the Sandinistas. Everyone was behind him because he made large sums of money. But Escobar kept his business up, creating new drug routes with the government of Cuba, Panama, and Nicaragua. Barry Seal, a pilot which had smuggled about 50 loads of cocaine for Pablo beforehand. He was a major part of the business, making around a million dollars per load. But what they didn't know is that their star pilot had been arrested and did not want to take a life sentence. So he became a government informant. Jake Jackson was his DEA handler. So as normal, they sent him to his regular meetings with Pablo and the cartel and they started to tell Barry that they would have a 6,000 foot strip on Sandinistan military base and they had 18,000 pounds of cocoa paste that they needed him to fly from Bolivia and Peru and into Nicaragua every week. So he did. He made it to the airstrip and the soldiers were waiting to load the plane and refuel it. Barry was trying to use one of the cameras that the CIA had planted on the plane. It was supposed to be in a soundproof box but when he took pictures with it you heard the snapping. At this point Barry had to get smart and he had to turn on the generators inside of the plane to cover up the sound of the cameras taking pictures. But they did have pictures of Escobar helping soldiers load the cocaine. So then they had proof that the Nicaraguan government were funding their economy with cocaine. Now Escobar and the cartel are worried because now they might have to face justice in the United States. And now because of Barry, Escobar is an internationally wanted criminal. But they caught up to Barry at a Salvation Army halfway house in Baton Rouge. A four-man Colombian hit team caught up with him and murdered him. This would be the end of their investigation without Barry. Escobar, he feared extradition and the American justice system because he couldn't intimidate or bribe as easily as he could in his own country. On the day that the Supreme Court was to rule law of extradition, they went with destruction or intimidation on the judicial system in Colombia. And if they were successful, they could take over the entire country. At that time, nearly 100 people were killed, including half of the members of the Supreme Court. Also, all files on extradition were destroyed. Anyone who didn't cooperate, they had pictures of their children at the playground, at their homes, and everyone that they loved and threatened to kill them. General Maza was almost killed eight times by Pablo, being not able to go anywhere without Carlos and armed men because of Escobar. Also Ramirez, 
because Pablo was not so forgiving about what happened in Trunk Orlando. Ramirez finally felt comfortable enough to take his family out for the weekend, November 7, 1986. They went to Bogota. He and his wife were having a conversation when a car pulled up with a machine gun spraying directly at Ramirez. His son ducked down in the back seat and his wife hopped out of the car and screamed, don't kill me. The man got out of the car, finished off Ramirez, but he would spare his son and wife. The entire democratic process was under attack. Even the newspaper staff were car bombed twice and 10 of their employees were killed and anyone else who were against them in the public or not. But the threats of Escobar were not silenced Lois Galan. He was an outspoken opponent of the cartel addressing a political rally on the outskirts of Bogota and gunfire rang out and killing Galan. After this, the police began to hit the 40 ranches and residents but it was already too late. Pablo was already one step ahead of them. So on the run, he continued his drug empire and with the crack epidemic sweeping the US at the time, his net worth grew to three billion. In 1982, a kilo of cocaine was worth 40 to 50,000. And in 88, the price got driven down to 14,000 a kilo because they brought so much in. The car bombings that were hitting the city were funded by drugs from the city. They created a new word, narco-terrorism. A bomb outside the police station killed 63 people and wounded 600. Then, December 1989, a jet in mid-air blew up, killing 107 people. Pablo got the bombs planted on the plane because there were people on the plane he did not want to make their destination. In 1990, a new president decided to change the constitution to the way that they wanted him to do. Therefore, no one was expedited to the United States. But Pablo has seen a lot of his cartel associates die like Gotcha and his son. And Fabio and his three sons surrendered to go to prison. Pablo's life was in danger. He was getting threats at home. His home was bombed, injuring his daughter. He negotiated for six months before turning himself in. Being picked up by a helicopter on the edge of a soccer field, he knew that going to prison would keep him alive, also get him protection from the government. The prison that Escobar went to was built on his own land and up to his own standards. He had a suite, living room, office, and a bathroom with a jacuzzi. He had parties and visits from his family every week. He continued his narco-trafficking from jail, but Pablo went too far when he brought four lieutenants to the prison to torture and murder them over a money dispute. So the police had had it. So when they came to get Pablo, the soldiers surrounded the prison, but Pablo had paid off so many officers, he had simply walked out the back gate. Pablo was on the run again. In the next 17 months, they would carry out 11,000 search warrants and 4,000 roadblocks. It was a 600-man unit that was to find Pablo dead or alive. He would do whatever it took to stay out of the public eyes, even riding taxis time after time. In December 2nd, 1993, he was intercepted by police, talking to his son Juan. He spoke a little too long, and he pinpointed the location. The officers made it to the scene and saw Pablo directly in the window with the phone in his hand. 
So they went in. Shots were exchanged. He had one bodyguard with him. They got to the third level and jumped out of the window and ran across the roof. The bodyguard jumped off the roof and had a shootout with police, getting shot and killed. Pablo exchanged shots with the police as well on the top level and the lower level. So he's shooting up and down. Outnumbered and with nowhere to go, Pablo was shot and killed. His mother and sister showed up minutes after. They say the thing that brought down Pablo Escobar was a combination of forces against him. His own lieutenant, who he had turned against while he was in jail, the government seeing all the violence and terror, and then of course the competition, the Kali cartel. At the end of Pablo's run, his organization had basically disintegrated and fallen into the hands of the Kali cartel. But in the end of the day, in the streets of Colombia, Pablo will always be a modern day Robin Hood to some. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Most Notorious Gangsters in the World podcast. I'm your host, Corey Franchise. I appreciate everybody listening. Remember, content comes out two times a week. Don't forget to subscribe. Peace.